I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. I'm going to expand the reading a little bit for a few more verses down to chapter 5, verse 2. And as you're turning there, let me put this in context. The point of this section here in chapter 4 into chapter 5, even into chapter 6, is that Christians' lives should look different than the world around them. These Ephesians have been uh, brought from death to life, spiritually speaking. They've been brought from darkness to light. Once they were alienated from God, now they are children of God. Therefore, their lives should, should look different. Paul tells them that they shouldn't live as the pagans do. They shouldn't continue in the old ways uh, in which they live now that God has done something. As Paul said to the Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. And chapter 4 here tells us that, that uh, Christians are to put off the old self, the old ways, uh, and be renewed in the spirit of our minds and put on the new self, which is being created after the likeness of God. So we're to resemble uh, resemble more and more our Heavenly Father to bear the family resemblance. Now beginning in verse 25, which we looked at last week, he begins to give us some concrete examples of things that should be put off and put on. And this week we look specifically at anger. So verse 26, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy inspired and an errant word. Well, we live in angry times. One only has to turn on the television, especially to the various news channels, and find someone ranting about the other side. You can turn on any radio station in our day and time and hear the popular music that's being played, and a lot of it is rife with anger. We live in an angry society, increasingly so. And maybe there are those of us here today who are angry ourselves. How do we manage that? What does the Bible say about anger? Well, there's two things that I want to bring out today. And maybe you will leave here today angry about what I say. So not only is this a sermon on anger, this sermon on anger may make you angry. I hope not, but hopefully this will give you some uh, ways in which you can deal with the anger that is all around us and maybe even in, a, in us and, and certainly is sometimes in us. Two things, anger 
the Bible tells us, is not always forbidden for the Christian. But, as point two says in your outline, forgiveness is always required. The passage brings this out, especially in verses 26, 27, and 31 down to 5-2. The rest we'll look at at another time. First, anger is not always forbidden. You'll notice there in verse 26 that we are told to be angry. But in verse 31, we are told to let all bitterness, wrath, and anger be put away from you. First, be angry, put away anger. That seems to be a mixed message. The word there, angry and anger, are the same word in Greek. Uh, just one is the verb and, and one is the noun, just like it is here in English. Now, obviously, and I think most people would understand this, Paul here is making a distinction between righteous and unrighteous anger. It is possible to be angry and to not sin. We see the Lord himself often described in Scripture uh, as being angry. You think about Jesus, who was sinless. He, he uh, drove the money changers out of the temple with a whip and turned over their tables and told them, you know, how dare you turn my uh, father's house into a den of thieves. Righteous indignation. He saw something terribly wrong and unjust, and he did something about it. He expressed his anger in, in a very appropriate way in that situation. The Lord is sinless. Uh, God is holy and righteous, and yet he's anger. So it is possible to have just anger. Certainly when we, we feel this anger, when we see some gross injustice happening around us, especially when we see some defenseless, innocent person being mistreated unjustly. We get angry, our blood begins to boil. Righteous anger. The key to, to note about righteous anger is that it is, it is always angry about sin. That's usually, uh, well, always the object of righteous indignation is sin, wickedness, brokenness. It's always about sin, and it is never selfish. You look at Jesus' example in the temple. He was angry about the sin that was going on there. People were being ripped off in the temple. It wasn't only because they were doing business in the temple, where they shouldn't have been doing business, but as well, uh, they were using it as an opportunity to take advantage of people, right there in God's temple. So he was angry about that. He was angry that his father's name was being defamed in his temple uh, was being defamed. You can also be angry uh, righteously when you see someone destroying their lives through poor and sinful choices. And, you know, rightfully so, you should get angry. You know, you get angry at the person, even though you love them. You get angry at the alcoholic that you see as destroying his life uh, with, with the drink. Now, there's much going on around us that Christians should be angry about. Much angrier than we are. John Stott in his commentary on this passage says, there is a great need in the contemporary world for more Christian anger. 
We human beings compromise with sin in a way in which God never does. In the face of blatant evil, we should be indignant, not tolerant, angry, not apathetic. If God hates sin, His people should hate it too. If evil arouses His anger, it should arouse ours also. This is why Paul commands us here to be angry. It's a command. It's an, it's an imperative. Be angry. He's saying, you be angry. But then he qualifies it, and I think that's very important. But do not sin. It is possible to be angry and to not sin. However, it is much, much easier to be angry and sin. And that's why we have to be very, very careful. Because even righteous anger can turn into sinful anger if it is allowed to fester. And that's why Paul says the next thing. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. It is easy, as Paul points out in verse 31, for bitterness, wrath, clamor, slander to come along with the anger. Even righteous anger can turn into bitterness, resentment, and malice, evil intent towards people with whom you are angry. And that's what the the psalmist was wrestling with in Psalm 4. He's angry because of the lies uh, that he's heard during the day. And he's lying there on his bed, but he's entrusting his life and the difficult people and the unjust circumstances to the Lord. He's not taking matters into his own hands in a sinful way. He's angry, but he's letting go of the bitterness that is lurking at the door, ready to ready to grow in his heart. Now, for example, I I certainly believe that abortion is a great evil and we should be angry about it. Now, I don't personally know any pro-lifer who has bombed an abortion clinic or murdered an abortion doctor, so I don't know the individual's hearts, but it seems to me that people who have engaged in those activities it seems to me that they have allowed righteous indignation to fester until it's become bitterness and malice and murder. The anger has blossomed into something that it shouldn't have ever been. And they have fought evil with evil. And that has not accomplished anything, really. Romans 12, 19 and following gives us the proper perspective. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I think that's what the psalmist in Psalm 4 is doing. He's entrusting the situation to the Lord, not in putting it in his own hands. He says, do not, overcome, uh, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Psalm 37 Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself for the one who prospers in his way over the man who carries out evil devices. That's what the psalmist in Psalm 4 was tempted to do. Refrain from anger, he says, and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoer shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. We'll develop this thought more in a moment. But I was told even before Sarah and I got married that we, in order to have a good marriage, needed to keep short accounts and to not go to bed angry. And 
And for the most part, I think we've, we've tried to do that and, and done that. But I believe this, this advice uh, extends to all relationships and situations. If you continue to keep the scorecard in your mind of all the wrongs you've suffered at the hands of people, especially those closest to you, then soon even your righteous anger, even if they have hurt you in ways that, that were terribly wrong, that will, that will become bitterness. Anger will eat away at you and become, be, begin to control your life. Now let me take a little rabbit trail for just a moment. This goes for not only our relationship with other human beings, but it also goes with our relationship with God also. Of course, we know God never sins against us. He, he is incapable of doing so. Uh, he never wrongs us. And no one here would probably say that God has wronged you because you know it can't be that way. However, even though you've never said it, I'm sure you felt it. We've all felt it. Why me, Lord? Why are you doing this to me? Why have you given me these, this life and these circumstances? Well, sometimes our suffering is God-inflicted. The Bible makes it clear that if we follow the Lord, we talked about it in Sunday school this morning, if we do righteous things, that we will suffer. If anybody follows Jesus and his steps, because he suffered, we will suffer as well. And God allows that to happen. You can, see, you can see it in the life of Job. Job was a righteous man, and he suffered because he was righteous. And Satan came against him, and the Lord allowed that. And he came out the other end uh, a stronger person with a story to tell, a story of grace and mercy. So sometimes God does allow us to go through difficult things. But sometimes our suffering is self-inflicted. We all know we suffer the consequences of our own sin. We do something wrong, we get the consequences of that, whatever it might be. Sometimes suffering is idle inflicted. And I think this is an important point to make here. We have idols of the heart. We have this tendency, as Calvin said, to our hearts are idol factories. You know, we don't worship uh, any statues or anything like that for the most part. Uh, but we do set up things in our hearts that we think are are vitally important to us, more, more important than God, though we would probably never admit that. It might be th something like a job or a promotion, having a comfortable life, having a perfect spouse or perfect children, or a secure future with our bank accounts. Well, when those idols are blocked and we do not get them, we get angry. You think of the person who has set their whole life on, on getting to the pinnacle of their profession. And then some younger, smarter guy comes along and snaps up that, that job. That person's going to get angry. If they're building their whole life around securing that job and somebody creeps in there and gets it before them, they're going to get very, very angry. Or you wake up a month after the honeymoon and find that he's not the perfect spouse. And there's going to be angry, uh, anger about that. Or we, we have our hopes set on a relationship and we can't even get a date. Or our children, and we've invested so much in them, and then they turn out bad, and they make bad decisions. And we shake our fist at God, why did you allow this to happen? Why are you doing this to me, God? We hate God for it. But in reality, what's really going on is that we have been using God 
to get our idols. What we really want is the promotion or the perfect children. And we think, if I follow God, if I'm a religious person, then God is going to give me that thing that I want. And when we don't get it, we blame God for it. You see, when we do that, the greatest good in our lives, we have defined that, is that thing, that created thing that we've put up there. When God is your greatest good, they can't take that away from you. You know, if the promotion is your greatest good, it can be taken away from you. But when God is our greatest good, which I think is what the psalmist in chapter 4 is talking about, uh, Psalm 4, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. See, he's affirming something. The good life, grain and wine abounding. I've got more joy in the Lord than they've got when that's going well. See, he's refocusing his priorities. He's placing his worship where it belongs. He's saying those things can be taken away. They're not important. God's important. He can never be taken away. So when God is your greatest good, when you put him at the center of your life, as Romans 8 says, nothing can separate you from that. Nothing can separate. They can throw you in prison. They can take away your house. They can take away all creature comforts. They can take away your job. They can throw you in prison. They can even kill you. But they cannot take away your uh, ability to have a relationship with the Lord, to have God as your portion. And even in death, hey, that, that gets you even closer to the Lord if you're a believer because you'll be immediately in his presence. Well, God, when God is your greatest good, you tend not to shake your fist at God because you didn't get the promotion or your life is difficult. Here into the rabbit trail. Back to the main course. Paul goes on to say that it is important not to allow even our righteous anger to become an opportunity for the devil. When you let things fester, uh, when you get mad at someone and maybe even at God, and you let it sit there, it, it becomes bitterness, it becomes rage, uh, it becomes destructive, malice, all these things that he's listed in verse 31. Satan loves that. It's an opportunity for him to, to, to cause damage. And if you notice, the devil will take your anger, even if it's righteous anger, and he can turn it into bitterness and resentment, Hatred, slander, malice, division, disunity, divorce, murder. You notice that Satan always wants to disrupt relationships. He wants to destroy your relationship with God. He hates that. He will try to make you angry and bitter towards God. He wants to disrupt the unity of the body of Christ. And he will stir up dissension in the church. We should always be aware of that. This person gets mad at that person in the church and this group gets mad at that group and soon the sides are drawn up and battle lines are drawn and it becomes us versus them within the body of Christ. And the devil laughs because he's gotten just exactly what he wants. He wants to break up families, marriages and families, husbands and wives, parents and children. You have to realize that the closer the relationship is, the more opportunity there is for us to offend one another and become angry. You know, they say the great sanctifier is marriage. I mean, you, 
You have to live with this person. When you, when you were dating, you know, you took a shower. You wore your nice clothes. You're on your best behavior. You opened the door for her and, you know, you did everything correctly. That's not really who you are. You know, you put on the brave face and you won her over. But then you have to live together and you see each other at your worst. And so there's opportunity after opportunity when you're so intimately related to offend one another and become angry. And the devil wants to get in there and cause division and break up the family through bitterness and resentment that can fester for decades and decades. You know, maybe you've even been wronged in your life by someone and you're angry, and rightfully so, but you have to be aware that Satan would like nothing more than to turn your righteous anger into bitterness and resentment and to destroy the relationship. And that's what he's doing in our society today, destroying relationships, destroying marriages, destroying families, destroying the very fabric of our society. And now we see what's going on around us, the immorality, the destruction uh, of the world. How can we fight this? And that brings us to the second point. You know, anger is not always forbidden. No, it's very difficult to manage it righteously. But forgiveness is always required. And this is the part where this might make somebody angry because they are anger and they are righteously anger. And here the Lord is calling us to forgive. And that is something that is incredibly difficult to do when you have been wronged. Forgiveness is always required of the Christian. Jesus taught us to pray. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do you realize what you're saying when you pray that? You're saying, forgive me for my sins, Lord, as I forgive those who have sinned against me. It implies, it implies that if we do not forgive those who have sinned against us, then we cannot expect the Lord to forgive us. Indeed, we're not even asking. We're asking the Lord not to forgive us if we haven't forgiven those who have sinned against us. The Lord is teaching us to keep short accounts. Indeed, that's probably a, a, the wrong way to say it. The Lord is teaching us to keep no account, no record of wrong, to be held over the other person. I can think of no better example than what Jesus himself gave. Peter came up to him and said, this is from Matthew 18, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And, you know, Peter was, thought he was doing pretty well. Seven times? I mean, I'll forgive him seven times. And Jesus says, and you know what he says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, or 70 times seven, how some translations put it. A lot more than seven. Continually forgiving and forgiving. And then he tells this story, this parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused. 
and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And, I, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. You look at the two men. One owed a hundred denarii, the second fellow, the poor servant. Uh, a denarii was a day's wage for a, a, a common laborer, minimum wage for a day. And he owed a hundred, so about three months' pay. Guy owed him a couple of thousand dollars. Well, the original guy owed 10,000 talents. Now, 10, 000, a talent, one talent, was equivalent to 6,000 denarii. 6,000 denarii. This guy owed 100 denarii. This guy owed 10,000 talents, one talent being at least, at least 6,000 denarii. And, in, and not even an imaginable sum. Jesus is telling this story and he, it's so exaggerated. It's like me saying, one guy owed a billion dollars, a trillion dollars. And, and the king said, you've got to go into prison and your family and and he forgave the guy. A trillion dollar debt. And then this other guy, you know, he, he was forgiven. And then he went out and started choking this guy because he owed him a 20. That's basically the, the way the story would sound in our day and time. It's absurd. And that's what God is requiring of his people. How do you do that? When you've been wronged, how do you forgive like this? Well, first he tells us, in verse 32, that we need to forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. Think about what Christ has done for you. That's, that's the example here. Christ has forgiven us 10,000 talents worth of sin, an insurmountable, in, un, inconceivable amount. He has been kind. Gr the word kind there is the same word for grace. He's been gracious to us, freely forgiving tender-hearted towards you. Compassionate is the word, is another synonym for that, tender-hearted. Christ has been gracious and kind, tender-hearted and compassionate towards us in reference to our sins. He didn't have to come to earth and die in our place and pay the penalty for our sins to pay our debts. And we pray, forgive us our debts. Well, the, they were forgiven because he paid for them. He paid for those debts. Those eternal debts that we have committed against uh, a holy and eternal God and if offended Him uh, eternally. So remember how Christ forgave you. And then secondly, he tells us in verse 1, be imitators of God as beloved children. Act like God. Be forgiving like God. Treat others like God has treated you. As beloved children tells us that we, we need to be like our Heavenly Father. Bear the family resemblance. You know, we have children, they look like us. Uh, they, they act like us, sadly, sometimes. They bear the family resemblance. We are to bear the family resemblance if we are followers of God. 
And then walk in the sacrifice of love and forgiveness. He tells us in verse 2, chapter 5, to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In order to forgive someone and to love someone, it requires a sacrifice, always. It doesn't come freely. If someone has angered you and really wronged you, to move past it, you've got to reconcile with the fact that you're not going to get satisfaction. If someone gives you satisfaction for what they've done to you, then they are paying for their sins. If we gave satisfaction for our sins to God, we would be paying for them, right? We would be, we would be working it off. And Christ's sacrifice and forgiveness wouldn't be required because if we have a debt and we work it off, we've paid it. We no longer have a debt and we've taken care of it. But what Christ has done for us is to take the debt and throw it aside, erase it. Nobody, no, we didn't have to pay for it. He paid for it. In order to forgive someone, you're going to have to pay for their debt. You're going to have to sacrifice in order to do that. It's painful. It's difficult. You're not requiring them to pay you back. You're not keeping an account saying, you did this to me, and in order to make it right, you've got to do something good for me. That's not forgiveness. Look at Jesus. He gave up his rights. He had rights to demand that we make up for the wrongs that we did. But as Philippians 2 tells us, that even though he was in the form of God, he, he was God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he didn't stop being God. He just looked at the rights that he had as God, the fact that he was equal with God, and, and he didn't hang on to that, but he emptied himself of those rights. And he became a servant. He became everything that a servant is. He became a servant embodied. And he became obedient to death, even death on a cross, to pay off our debt. He doesn't expect us to pay off our debts. He died to forgive our debts. And we're called to do the same thing to those who have wronged us. It doesn't mean that we have not been hurt. It doesn't mean that we aren't experiencing pain for what's happened to us. It doesn't mean that we don't have the right to be angry just means that we shouldn't let the sun go down on our anger, deal with it, forgive those who have wronged you. If you've wronged someone, ask for their forgiveness. Don't let it turn into bitterness and wrath and malice and give opportunity to the devil to destroy the relationship and your soul. Many of you are familiar with Corey Ten Boom. Corey Ten Boom uh, was in a concentration camp during the Second World War. And after she uh, was, was freed, uh, she lost family members in that, and she was thrown in because she, they harbored Jews. Uh, she's a Christian. But she went around speaking afterwards, and here's the story that she tells. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with a message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land. 
and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, and silence collected their wraps, and silence left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had again and again to be forgiven, and I could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had home, a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with a coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Help, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, 
bring ear, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. For a long moment we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Let's pray.